Hi, uh, welcome to Voice of Immigration. I'm your host, John Veeley, CEO of Online Visas. Um, this is how to win an H-1B visa after Trump's immigration ban. Uh, there, are very, or there are six very significant things uh, that have happened this year um, that have all occurred since March 2020 uh, that will really impact how you file for an H-1B visa um, for the remainder of this year and going forward. So, number one, uh, the executive order of President Trump suspending entry of H-1B visas and other visas from outside the U.S., um, with exceptions for certain types. Um, number two, the IT Sur versus CISNA and other federal cases that held USCIS um, memorandum from 2010 and 2018 as invalid under the um, Code of Federal Regulations. Number three, the settlement agreement that stemmed from the USC, the, U, the, the IT Serve Alliance versus CISNA case. Um, number four, uh, the new policy memorandum of June 17th, 2020, that removed the earlier memos and implemented a new policy to comply with the settlement agreement stemming from the case of IT Serve um, Alliance versus CISNA. And number five, the COVID-19 pandemic, remember that, and six, public charge issues. All of these things are different this year, but yet you can still file H-1B visas in 2020 after the Trump immigration ban. We're going to dig in and show you how to do this. This is going to be a fairly long uh, video. Um, if you're watching it on YouTube, uh, please uh, subscribe and turn on your notifications and we'll keep you up to speed. Things are happening all the time. In this ban, uh, there is talk of new federal regula regulations to come out of the Department of Labor and Homeland Security that could impact H-1B uh, visas and other visas going forward. So uh, stay tuned with us on that. If you're watching it on YouTube, uh, please like and share and comment. Uh, we'd like to keep you posted and, and keep you on top of what we're doing. Um, you may be watching it on Facebook. You may be watching it on LinkedIn. You may be watching it on Instagram TV um, or, or, or seeing this on Twitter. We also may break this up into smaller videos. So if it's not addressing all of these things, go back to the YouTube channel and check them out. We'll also post these things on onlinevisas.com. And you can always go to onlinevisas.com, uh, enter into a chat with our team, or set a strategy session so you can talk to me or other members of our team about some of your issues and how this might impact you and, and how you can get an H-1B or other visas, okay? So let's break it down. Um, number one, the impact of, pre of the presidential proclamation of June 22nd, 2020, banning H-1B and other visas into the United States. So in short, the executive order or presidential proclamation, as they call it, only stops the entry of H-1B visas from outside the U.S. Um, if not processed or stamped by a consular uh, a U.S. consulate outside the United States prior to June 24th, 2020. So what that means is that if you're in the United States on another type of visa, right, you can change your status from that other type of visa, uh, such as a visitor visa, such as a student visa or a student visa with OPT um, or, or any of the other visas to the H-1B visa. You can still do that despite the ban, okay? It also means that if you're on an H-1B visa um, and you want to extend that H-1B visa, H-1B visa, you can do that. You can also amend that H-1B visa if you have a different type of job with the same employer or from a different employer. So there's still some meat left on this bone. There are still H-1Bs we can do, ladies and gentlemen. So let's let's dig in on that. Okay, so, and also, if you're outside the United States and you've already gone to the consulate and you've already had your visa stamped into your passport, you can still enter as well. So it means you can't get an H-1B visa, even if you had it approved, even if you've tried to set up a consular visit to go into your consulate and get the, the visa stamped in and you couldn't because the consulates are closed, you can't do it now. And that's very unfortunate, but that's where we are right now. Now, there are some exceptions, and we'll go into that, right? So um, if you're in that situation, the exceptions to the H-1B ban are critical to defense, law enforcement, diplomacy, or other national security of the U.S., um, another exception to that are nurses and physicians working in hospitals related to COVID-19, medical researchers for COVID-19, um, national interest, right? We'll go into that a little bit more. Temporary labor to the U.S. food supply chain, 
right? How far does that go, right? There's, so if you if you don't know if you're a national interest or if you are if your job in the U.S. food supply chain in a restaurant or you know plucking chickens, um, if that applies to you, contact us and, and we'll go over the facts of your case. Uh, that's going to be very specific, fact specific stuff. Uh, here's another one: necessary to facilitate the immediate and continued economic recovery of the United States. Okay, what does that mean? Well, there'll be what we understand is a waiver process for those kind of undefined areas um, that haven't been defined yet. There's no discussion on how that waiver will take place. Um, We think uh, it will happen at the U.S. consulate level. So if you get your visa approved, right? So you you go ahead and file your I-129 and your application to get your visa approved. And and you believe that this job is necessary to facilitate the immediate and continued economic recovery in the United States. That sounds pretty broad, doesn't it? Or it's in a national interest. Pretty broad, doesn't it? That you would have a waiver and you would make that argument to the U.S. consulate. Okay, so that would be very, very sophisticated. We can get involved and help you on that. So, you know, go to online visas and check that out. National interest, we kind of have some understanding on how to do that because there is a national interest waiver for the EB2 uh, uh, permanent residency visa. That's a green card and the national interest waiver. So there's sort of a category there. Now, we don't know if it's going to be as pronounced as the green card. If a national interest for an H-1B, it may not be. We don't know that yet. But that's kind of how, what we would look at immediately. Now, the uh, how would you prove the uh, immediate and continued economic recovery of the United States, right? You know, my job creates jobs. My job creates, uh, you know, money for my company, which creates lots of jobs. So um, maybe there's something around there. I mean, we can get experts involved. Um, we would look at it in the same way we look at extraordinary ability, right? And what I mean by that is not the same criteria, but you look at extraordinary ability by having evidence, supported by experts, right? So we look at, okay, this person has this job and it does this. And our evidence is here's a contract in which they do it. Here is the type of work they're doing. Here's how it impacts the economy. And then we have experts uh, examine that, right? And we help draft those letters for those experts so that they can testify on paper what that impact is. And then we support those experts with tertiary evidence. Tertiary evidence can be um, articles, or any other piece of evidence that maybe doesn't support our client directly, but the the uh, the position that the expert has, right? So those are the type of things that we would probably look at that. So so don't give up if you're outside the United States and and you think that that might uh, help you, or if you're a company that wants to bring in this really important person, that's how we'd address that. As far as we know today, like this is a fluid situation. Nobody's done this before. There is no expert. Okay, so, uh, you know, just being creative and looking at it and thinking about it and and uh, those that, that understand those issues will do that. Okay, so um, other things that are not covered, the H-1B one, right? The H-1B specifically excluded. The H-1B one wasn't, and that's for citizens of Chile and, Sing- and Singapore. And they're not included because they're protected by a treaty, okay? Which means it also doesn't deal with the E-3, which although it doesn't have an H-1B in its name like the H-1B-1 does, is effectively the same visa, except it's for Australians, right? But it's also protected by treaty, and it has not been excluded. And also the TNs, treaty NAFTA, is what TNs are for Canadians and Mexicans. Now, that doesn't work exactly like the H-1B, it's not, and it's not in there, but they can do that, right? And some believe, that, and this may not be, uh, some believe that Canadians may be exempted because they can enter without visas, uh, on their Canadian uh, passport. So that gives them an entry into the United States. So they could come into the United States and then file for their H-1B then. Or, this is another possibility, and again, no one's an expert on this yet, but we're just analyzing it as best we can. So so you know, forgive us if, if this turns out to be wrong later, but this is our analysis as we stand here today, just days after this, that a Canadian uh, doesn't have to go to a consulate, right? And the consulates are the ones that would, would ban that and they don't have the visa stamped in their passport they merely go to the border which isn't open yet right by the way so they go to the border and they're just stamped uh to enter right so um we believe because they're quiet on the canadians that the canadians might be able to do h1bs even if outside the country that way or like i said enter the united states and change their status from entering and and when a canadian enters because they don't have to have a visa, it's effectively a B1, B2, so a change of status from that. And, and maybe the way to do that 
is that the Trump administration has has looked at intent, right? It's looked at intent. And and when you enter on a B1, B2 visa from any other country or a Canadian, when you enter, you are, without saying it, stating you are you intend to leave when you come back. So if you enter on that B1, B2 visa, you can't just file the next day. Intent has been changed under the Trump administration from 60 days to 90 days. So it would be coming in, maybe exploring a job situation, interviewing, finding a job, then deciding, and at the 90th day, filing uh, an I-129 to change your status from a Canadian entering effectively um, like a B-1B-2. So that's an interesting thing, right? Um, let's see. Uh, so the ban is one of a series of things, as we stated, that have impacted the H-1B visa. We'll continue with the other situations on a longer, on this longer video, but we may cut this up into abbreviated videos. So if it's the abbreviated video and this is when it ends uh, and you want to hear more about it, go to onlinevisas.com and look for those videos or to the Online Visas YouTube channel and look at those other ones. All right. So we're going to go and talk about uh, other sections of what has impacted um, the the processing of H-1B visas besides the ban. So uh, the, uh, the impact of the IT-Serve versus Cisna case, the settlement of that case, and the memo of June 17, 2020 um, on the H-1B visa processing. This will be a longer section because it's dealing with three things, but they're all related. And it's what does the ban say? How does it relate? I'm sorry, what does the memo say? How does it relate to the settlement language and how does it more importantly relate to what the federal judges said and the federal court held that you can use when you are processing H-1B visas. Okay, so um, this is where if you're in the United States or on an exception to the ban, um, you still need to obtain the H-1B visa. And 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 look, a lot of people are thinking now that the IT-serve case is going to, it's it's going to be rubber stamped. Hey, we don't even need to have a, a uh, an immigration attorney to process these H-1B visas. Well, not so fast. Um, immigration's hard right now. This administration did not do this ban because it likes immigration. This administration did not do this settlement because it wanted to do this settlement. It had to because a judge told them to, right? But we are not seeing uh, an easier going on immigration visas. It is the toughest it's ever been in the history of immigration, right? The toughest I've ever seen it in the 26 years I've been practicing law is right now. And so there are going to be things that are going to be easier to do. There are going to be things that this case allows you to do, but that's not all of them. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through the memo and when we're going to say what it says, right? And it's going to have a, here's the question it'll ask and then it'll have an answer, right? We've done this before on other, um, on other videos. If you want to see more of that, go to those other videos that we have on our YouTube channel and, and check it out. But we're going to do that and then we're going to say, what does it mean? And we're going to give you hints. Right, so kind of think of it as immigration for dummies, right? Those uh, those great yellow books that lay something out and have notes. We'll we'll go through those things and then we'll give you our analysis of that. So 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 uh, follow me through here. So um, after the uh, IT serve case held that the 2010 and 2000, I think it's 18 memorandums that USC applications uh, that USCA used um, with a defensor case, the application of the defensor case, um, they denied a lot of H-1B visas particularly for those that petition for employees to be placed at what we call third parties uh, sites or end users, right? So that's where a staffing company might hire somebody, have a vendor agreement to then go to a big company or another company and send that person over there. And uh, those folks were right in the crosshairs of the last memorandum that was called the Itineraries and Contracts Memorandum. Uh, that came out um, a couple years back, right? And so this that memorandum has been thrown out, and that memorandum was on the back of, in reference, the 2010 memorandum, which is really why, how how and why IT Serve Alliance even started. So IT Serve Alliance is a wonderful group of Americans that are mostly of Indian descent that have companies that have been supporting our tech industry um, since you know even before the economic. Uh, um, uh, recession of 2008 and 2009. And many, many of them started coming over to deal with the Y2K in 2000, right? Coming over on uh, student visas, on H-1Bs themselves, and now have built this industry of over a thousand uh, companies that have been supporting all these other companies in recruiting and training and sending workers to their locations on projects and, and arming them with some of the best technology. They're really, really driving our, our world. And it's, you know, cloud-based stuff, 
uh, big data, artificial intelligence, blockchain. I mean, these are remarkable people that you're bringing up. They're helping us back. And our administration has kind of dumbfoundedly um, attacked this this industry and really the uh, the staffing industry. So so the courts have pummeled them, right? They pummeled them with a series of cases, one of which was called IT Serve um, Alliance versus Cisna. Uh, Francis Cisna was the head of uh, Homeland Security. Right, so you'll see some different things. And we're going to go through that language, and then we'll go through some of the other cases as too. Okay, so let's dig in, all right, to the memorandum. So the first question is under the category of the employer-employee relationship, okay? So a number of the reasons that, uh, that uh, uh, USCIS have been denied in those cases have been handled in this memo. Now, we're going to go through after that those that have not been handled in a memo that are still going to be there that you're going to need to consider, okay? So we're going to do these first. So the employer-employee relationship is a big one, and this really has right to control is, is the term of art that deals with it. So the question in the memo asks, shouldn't an officer consider an H-1B petitioner and an H-1B beneficiary to have an employer-employee relationship if they meet only one of the higher pay, fire, supervise, or otherwise control the work of factors under 8 CFR 214.2 H42. Okay, so what USCIS had been doing prior to that is making you hit more than one of those, right? But the but the language um, of the regulation says or, right? So it's higher pay, higher pay, fire, supervise, or otherwise control the workup. They've been they took out the or and made it an and, right? So um, the memo says. The officer should apply the existing regulation definition in assessing whether the employer-employee has this relationship, and they should use the or, right? Um, So uh, that's what they look at. So it says there, um, H-1B petitioners are required to submit a labor condition application, that's called an LCA, and a copy of a written contract between the petitioner and beneficiary, or a summary of the terms of an oral agreement if a written contract does not exist, Depending on the content of such documentation, it may establish the employer-employee relationship. Uh, the officer may not apply or the, the prior rescinded guidance. Okay, so what does that mean? The contract language must be clear and indicate that any of the four factors exist. The information could be included in the formal contract or an engagement agreement, a letter of support for an employee, or other co-signed document between the petitioner and beneficiary. So the language is important. What we do for our clients is we look at those things. We see others might just slap it in there, put a table of contents and charge it and hope it's okay. But what you want to look for is inconsistencies, right? That's where they'll get you. So you only have to do one of those things. So it can say that, but it should be spelled out in one of those documents, right? All right. So where does this come from? So the case law, right, is pretty interesting. Uh, the ITC court addressed the USCIS repeated denials of visa petitions for failure to demonstrate a valid employer-employee relationship. The court held it is sufficient to establish this relationship by the meaning of the plain language, which is hire, pay, fire, supervise, or otherwise control. So the IT serve reasoned that the additional requirement of providing day-to-day assignments to show the requirement control of employees was erroneous and that meeting any of the four criteria under the regulations are sufficient, all right? So um, that's kind of where we were. So they were requiring day-to-day assignments, and you'll hear that later in the memo. So day-to-day assignments are not necessary to show uh, a continuation of that. They may use them in other ways, right? And so we'll get into that, and the devil's in the details and what you put in. So um, got to be careful with these guys. Uh, they're, they, they can still get you. Okay, so uh, number two, must the H-1B petitioner establish the employment exists at the time of filing? A, and, and so this was a big deal. This is a really big deal to immigration, okay? And, and the reason it's a big deal is that, that some staffing companies in the past have, you know, applied for H-1B visas at the April 1st deadline, right? Which is now a little bit different because you now have a March registration. This is also what just happened this year. March registration up through uh, March 24th. And then if you're picked for the lottery until uh, June 31st, right? So 90 days after April 1st to file. Okay, so what they were doing before the filing date, which is now June 31st, and before that it was April 1st, they would they would apply for a bunch of visas, right? And then they would say, I can get the work, or think I can get the work before October 1st when they start, right? This is what immigration doesn't like, okay? They, they don't think there's work there. So a bona fide, this is their answer to, must the H-1B petitioner establish the employment exists at the type of filing? A bona fide job offer must exist at the time of filing. The petitioner is required to attest 
under penalty of perjury on the H-1B petition that the LC and the LCA that all of the information contained on petition and supporting document is complete, true, and correct. Okay, so if you think that you can go back and use the old style that people were getting, getting away with, that you can apply for a bunch of visas and you don't have work, then they, they, they can get you on this uh, attestation, which means they could find you fraudulent, they could debar you from your ability to file for visas, you know, maybe even turn it into a crime, okay? So really suggest not doing that. Um, but, you know, can you have enough, can you have enough work? You, what, what you don't have to do, right, that the courts have really hammered on is know exactly what these people are going to do for the next three years, right? And so, for example, I'm, a, I'm an attorney, right? And I get clients, new clients every day. I have enough clients right now to hire the people I have, but I don't know who they're going to work for tomorrow or the day after that. You know, matter of fact, they're ready for them, and that's that's part of our magic, right? I mean, come on in, we'll help you out, right? And we don't have to know that I'm going to hire this guy to work on a case uh, for a client uh, for the next three years, and and that's really where immigration hammered them. But they're they're really trying to catch people on that, and and watch out. USCIS has uh, has a very increased budget when it comes to enforcement and more site visits than we've ever seen before. So they, they may go out, uh, turn up at your office, ask your um, employees, if you're a company, um, you know, uh, you know when, did they, when did this work come, right? And, and your receptionist or HR director or manager, or whatever, um, might say, oh, well, we didn't get this contract until you know, um, August or October, right? And, and that might be what they use against you, okay? So be careful. All right, so um, contracts, another big issue under the H-1B contracts. All right, so the question on the memo is, should an officer request the chain of contracts or legal agreements between the H-1B petitioner and third parties, including the ultimate end client and any intermediary vendors uh, to assess the employee-employer relationship or non-speculative employment in a specialty occupation, the work availability? This is what they did before. All right, and so this was problematic for a lot of companies even where those contracts existed, because they didn't want to share, right? So this is how this works if you don't know. So you have a staffing company, hires, trains, gets somebody ready to go, wants to put them out of the project. They go to a vendor, and there's these vendor business softwares um, out there that say, hey, uh, we got work for whatever. They sign up their guy, they get selected, the vendor then places them through their name to an end user, you know, maybe a bank or a big software company or something like that. Many of the vendors don't want to bother their end users. The end users don't want to be bothered by them. And, and they don't want to share their contracts for a couple of reasons. One might be that the, the staffing company could circumvent them. Uh, now you could get past that with a, uh, an agreement between all three that said there'd be no circumvention, something along those lines, but they just don't want to do it. And for a number of different reasons and valid ones, right? Uh, so uh, what immigration was denying cases is if you didn't have every one of those contracts, and there may be three, there may be four of them, right? So um, here's the answer. Um, in support of the petition, the H-1B petitioner is not required by existing regulation to submit contracts or legal agreements between the petitioner and third party. All right, big win, all right? However, <laughs> the petitioner must demonstrate eligibility for the benefit sought. In assessing whether an employer and beneficiary have or will have an employer-employee relationship, the officer may consider any evidence provided by the petitioner, including the chain of contracts or legal agreements between the petitioner and third parties. Further, if the petitioner provides contracts or legal agreements, the officer is not precluded from evaluating that evidence in the adjudication of other criteria. Okay, so what does that mean, right? You don't have to provide it, but if you do, they can evaluate it and use it against you for that reason and other criteria, right? How would that work? Okay, so here's, here's what to watch out for in that. So, you, you know, look, what we kind of do rule of thumb is if you have it, give it to them, but really be careful and review it and make sure there's nothing in there. Immigration uses what I call the string in the sweater. They find something, yank on it, and it pulls off the whole sweater or destroys the entire case. Okay, so what would they do? What are some examples of that? Okay, inconsistent job titles in the evidence could mean it's not a specialty occupation. For example, all right, this happened a lot as, as immigrations become more and more tough. So you might have a job that's called a developer, software developer at the third party, right? You, uh, the vendor may say, hey, we're looking for um, architects, which is a more sophisticated uh, 
uh, developer. They may say programmers, which is now kind of a dirty word in immigration. Shouldn't be. Not really a, 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 an easy way to define what the difference between a computer programmer and a computer developer is, but, but immigration has decided there is such a difference. Um, programmer, analyst, there's all sorts of things. And, and so, you know, what they were kind of trying to stop, I think, right, is that some of the job titles may have a lower prevailing wage. That's the minimum wage for that than others. So companies wanting to have a lower prevailing wage that was going to send an employee off um, and then, you know, at a price per hour could make more money if they paid them a lower wage. Now, that is one of the things immigration has been trying to stop, that it, that a um, foreign national got paid less than American. Well, just because the prevailing wage is higher or lower doesn't mean it's less than the American. It just means they have these parameters in which they're trying to operate under. What does this uh, one pay and what does this one pay? Okay, so those are those are some of the things in the machinations of, of how that works, right? So if those job titles are inconsistent and you provide it, then they could say, this is fraudulent, and, they, and it's just a basis they're not. In addition to the inconsistent job titles, you might have inconsistent dates, inconsistent job duties, uncertainty about who the employer is, right? So the employer-employee relationship is who has the right to hire, fire, uh, supervise, or pay, right? But if the... If immigration believes that looking at this language, that the end user, right, is really the employer, and that's why they use defensor, and defensor got thrown out, but that's what they're trying to do, right? And I don't think they're done doing that, right? We've seen this with immigration before. Cases come down, and they just ignore it, and they figure, well, well look, I can deny it. Who's going to take this to a federal court case, okay? Now, I can tell you who. There's a, these great guys out there. Jonathan Wasden, you know, is bringing lots and lots of them out there, and if you want any information about how to sue if your case got denied, like you can do that, right? Like if your case got denied prior to IT serve on any of the bases IT serve, you can go back in and get that visa, all right? If you need help on that, give us a call. Come to onlinevisas.com and set up a strategy session. We can help you um, litigate those cases. We got some partners out there that do that sort of stuff and we're glad to jump in and help you along those ways. But that's one of those deals. So um, that's something to be, it's, it's not gone, right? I mean, just be, be wary of that. This is not going to be easy peasy. There is definitely some nuance to that. So next question on the memo. May an officer deny a petition for an H-1B non-immigrant classification on the basis that the petitioner, while having identified and described the nature of the specialty occupation, has not specified the beneficiary's day-to-day assignments in that role? Remember where we talked about uh, that day-to-day assignments piece from the IT serve language? Okay. All right. So uh, an officer should deny a petition when the, when the beneficiary is not established that the beneficiary will work in a specialty occupation. That's how they answered that question, right? Doesn't even really answer that question. What they said is, watch out. Um, we're going to deny it if you're not working in a specialty occupation instead of answering, do you have to do day-to-day assignments? Okay. So then after that, we're going to deny this if you don't mean the specialty occupation sentence. They say, while a petitioner is not required to identify the document's uh, beneficiary specific day-to-day assignments, the petitioner must meet all statutory regulation requirements, excluding the itinerary requirement. Okay. Binding court precedent, um, AAO and adopted precedent decisions and current USA policy guidelines concerning H-1B classification, right? So if the officer finds that a petitioner has not established by a preponderance of the evidence statutory or regulatory eligibility for the classification, the officer should articulate the basis of denying the H-1B petition. They just shouldn't use the rescinded guidance. All right, so what does that mean? Okay, so they're using a lack of specificity in the duties to determine the petitioner has not proven uh, that the job is what they say it is. That's what they're saying. Okay, so what does that mean? The day-to-day means that you got to tell them what your employee is going to do every day for three years. You don't have to do that, okay? But what I think you need to do is you need to describe in detail what a given day is, right? What does this person typically do um, in their job? You don't have to say they're going to do it this day every day, but if you day the typical day, right, and you get into the specificity, that's how you're going to win these cases, right? So in the job details, now we we inherit a lot of immigration cases. We inherit people that bring our, our, our RFEs and stuff like that. And one of the biggest things that we see in the RFEs is that they say the job description is too vague. All right. And what is too vague? So when they say it's too big, it's something like, um, you know, beneficiary will um, evaluate uh, clients' um, technical needs and beneficiary will design 
um, technical elements. Beneficiary will develop, you know, um, code. You know, that's vague, right? What, what I think you need to do is talk about a typical day-to-day -day and an example, okay? Don't say they're only going to work for this one uh, project, but an example of the work that we do includes uh, in, um, evaluating uh, the ABC company's one, two, three program to determine its uh, applicability um, for its clients' needs. And then, you know, design a, a the front end or user interface to optimize the user experience using, you know, the, you know, one, two, three uh, computer language, right? I mean, that kind of stuff is where you need to do. Developing using this particular code um, to build out um, elements of the computer's uh, application, right? Uh, to help uh, its clients process a particular type of thing, right? I mean, so it's, you really, you want to use layman's terms so they can understand it. So first of all, laymen are reading it right? Not techies. What we see in a lot of these cases is really, really uh, hard computer language. And um, in that really, really, uh, you know, technical computer language, you get lost. So I'm not saying you should remove computer language. You need to have it, right? But you need to be able to describe it to somebody that doesn't speak it, right? We, we almost look at ourselves as translators. We need to understand what are you trying to do? How do we describe this in layman terms so that somebody who doesn't have a technical background can do this? But let's include specifics, like the type of the language, the name of the project or projects or types of projects, things like that. That's, you know, that right there, I think is where a lot of it's going to be. Okay. The next one, may an officer deny a petition for the H1B um, on the basis that the petitioner, while having identified and described the nature um, of the specialty occupation has not specified the beneficiary's day-to-day -day assignments. Okay. That's uh, Can we deny it if they don't do what we're not supposed to do? Right, so um, an officer should deny a petition. Um, I'm sorry, I just did that one. Uh, I apologize. Let me back up. Okay, so the next the next one is uh, is non speculative um, occupations. Okay, non speculative occupation work. This is a big deal um, that H that uh, USCI they, they thought that it was it uh, you know didn't meet it. Okay, so should an officer require evidence of day to day assignments to establish the availability of specialty occupation work? All right, now remember, we talked about this right in their language, the day-to-day -day operations that were shot down. Do not, uh, you cannot ask for day-to-day -day assignments, but they keep rolling it back in here. Okay, the answer of should an officer require evidence of day-to-day -day assignments to establish the availability of special occupations, despite IT surf saying, nope, you can't, is the officer should review the, the petition as described by the H-1B petitioner to determine if the petitioner has met its burden of proof to establish the beneficiary will be employed in a specialty occupation. While evidence of the specific day-to-day -day assignments is not required to establish that the position is specialty occupation of the, the petitioner may choose to provide such evidence. You don't need to, but if you do, we need to do that. So what does that mean? Okay. Um, it means an employment letter or contract should be sufficient to describe the job. You have an agreement for the next three years um, that this software developer is going to work for me and here's what they're going to do. That should be do that. But note, the description should be detailed and not be vague, just as we talked about. It should list examples of projects. Um, you know, you can always throw in examples of projects too. Again, this what they're trying to do is think of USCIS uh, folks as detectives. That's kind of how they look at themselves. And what are they? They are investigating fraud, things that don't really exist, right? So if you're saying we are a software company and we are developing software applications for clients. Um, there's nothing wrong with putting in a, a couple of the things that you've done, right? Some marketing materials possibly of it, some websites of some of the things you've developed, um, you know, things that you might want to redact any of your secret sauce, but to show, look, we've done this for a long time. Here's an example of some of it, right? Nothing wrong with that. A little note for you. All right, here's another one. May an officer deny a petition for H-1B non-immigrant classification on the basis that the petitioner while having identified and described the nature of the specialty occupation, has not uh, specified the petitioner's day-to-day -day assignments in that role, right? Um, again, they sort of flipped it around from their last one. Um, and they, uh, it's sort of the same thing. And it says, again, kind of like they did earlier, an officer should deny a petition when a petitioner has not established that the beneficiary will work in a specialty occupation. 
And while they're not required to do the day-to-day assignments, um, you know, <laughs> they can do it. So what does that mean? Well, just because you do not have to provide the day-to-day assignments does not mean they will not deny you if you don't establish the jobs of specialty occupation. And again, they, they keep kind of hitting around this. So again, specific examples of what you've done, those sort of things. And understand that what whether it's a specialty occupation is kind of brought on two things, right? It's whether or not the the duties are similar to the duties are in a database called the Occupational Outlook Handbook, the OOH. Okay, you go to the OOH and you look at what do what's a software developer do, or what's a doctor do, what's a lawyer do, right? What's an architect do, what's a business analyst do, any of those sort of things in the H-1B. I don't mean to make this all tech. There are H-1Bs uh, for anything, any job that requires a university degree. Okay, that's the second prong. So is is a job similar in the OOH to your job, okay? And does it require a degree, all right? So this is where um, we're gonna get into that under specialty occupation more, right? So you wanna look at the, the, the duties under the OOH and see, are they similar to your job? Now, here's a trick of the trade. Don't go in and copy it and put it in your employment letter just like the OOH. They'll say, that's manufactured. No job is exactly like the OOH lists it, right? So you wanna look at it, does it do the similar things, right? Um, you know, and that, that's kind of the way to do that. Don't be afraid to include some technical and, uh, language like details and complex methodologies uh, employed, uh, technical tools or language used, or other specifics about the process provided you describe how they work in layman's terms, okay? So again, this all goes back to that, your employment letter. So what, what do we do, right? So we don't just take a company's job description and give it to immigration, okay? Because it may not be close enough to the OOH, um, it needs it needs massaging. Right now, we want to be truthful, right? We're not saying we make something up out of thin air, but we look at the job description and what we do is we create a letter, right? A letter to immigration from the company that takes the details of the job description, looks at the OOH, looks at what you're going to do, and makes sure that it, it discusses how it's related to a, a specific degree or degrees, right? And, and we'll go into degree or degrees later. That's a really big piece that immigration's been hammered on lately. They've really tried to tighten it down to one degree, right? Well, it, which isn't the way it's supposed to be done there. And they've been pinged by the court. All right, so number three, may an officer deny an H-1B extension or change the status request or revoke an approval um, if the evidence in the record established the beneficiary was benched or never worked, but was still paid? Okay. What they say, this is their answer, except in certain limited circumstances, benching is prohibited by law to prevent foreign workers from unfair treatment by their employers and ensure that the job opportunities and wages of U.S. workers are being protected. The failure to work according to the terms and conditions of the petition approval may support, among other enforcement actions, revocation um, of the petition approval, uh, a finding that the beneficiary failed to maintain status, or both. Guidance concerning benching remains unchanged. The officer may issue a notice of intent to deny, that's called a NOID, or a failure to maintain the status, or a notice of intent to revoke if they have the visa, uh, for failure to maintain the status they've already been approved. All right, so lack of work may be a material change in terms of conditions for employment that could affect eligibility for H-1B uh, visa holders. Um, no longer being employed in capacities specified in the petition is a basis for revocation. Being placed in a non-productive status or training for an extended period of time, even paid, may qualify as being no longer employed in the uh, capacity specified in the petition. If a beneficiary is non-productive status because of a lack of work, that could indicate uh, that the beneficiary no longer is in a specialty occupation. You know, they kind of go there. And they, they show there's some exceptions. One is the Family Medical Leave Act, so if somebody gets pregnant, right? They go on there, they should be protected, or the Americans with Disabilities Act if they get hurt, right? So that's where they've limited to it, right? So um, they really did that. So what does that mean? All right, so look, what a memorandum is, is USCIS's policy people telling its adjudicators how to analyze something. That doesn't mean it's what the law says. That means it's how they want their people to approach it, right? So we're going to hit you in RFE if there's some time off, right? Well, the courts have, have stated that, and, and Department of Labor looks at it, that you can have some periods of time off, right? It's not like if they ever take a day off or, or, their, or their, their project ends and, you know, there is a period of time um, that, that they're out of status. So it's how long is that? Now, what's best practices? Best practices is don't 
don't have anybody take any time off, right? Then you don't have that issue. What we do is it's risk removal, right? So do it the whole time or have your companies doing a lot of different work. Um, put them on something else. Do not send them home with nothing to do. Make sure they're working all the time if you can. But if you can't, right, there is going to be a period of time that it's going to be okay and a period of time it's not going to be okay. And that is not defined, right? What they're telling you is it could be, and we could do that for this reason, but they're not saying you can't do it, right? We could do it. So what they're telling you is we want to, we're going to do it if we can, but they can't tell you that you can't do it. And that's what's really interesting, right? Um, so take a, think about that in that situation. All right. The next one, itineraries. Should an officer continue to apply the itinerary requirement under the regulations? Well, no, <laughs> is the answer. We won't go into that. that you know, and here's why. Because IT serve case struck down details and itineraries that are inconsistent with the professional specialty occupation. IT serve holds. It is irrational. That is arbitrary and capricious to impose a requirement of contracts and other corroborated evidence of dates and locations of temporary work assignments uh, for, few, for three future years. It is, in fact, a total contradiction of the plaintiff's business model of providing temporary IT expertise to U.S. businesses. It would destroy a long-standing business resource without congressional action. Bam, right? IT serve also addressed that the itineraries indicating a full visa term of uninterrupted work was in opposition to the 1998 ACWIA when Congress anticipated non-working periods during the team of a term of an H-1B and moved to avoid any negative impact on U.S. employers by making foreign workers cheaper to employ. Therefore, the itinerary requirement in the INS 1991 regulation as adopted by INS, that's what now enforced by CIS, has been superseded by statute. Okay, so that answers the last question, doesn't it, right? So they're saying that there is an act, 1998 ACWIA, that they anticipated non-working periods. So while they said you can't bench, you actually can, if, but not use the word bench. <laughs> you don't ever use the word bench. Benching's bad, but if there is an unanticipated period of time where you're not going to work, that's okay because the federal law says you can do it and USCIS can't do that. So, so that's why it's really important not just to read the memo, but read the law and cite the law that is the word that is the purpose of that memo, right? It's not just what they say it is, it's how are they interpreting what Congress said, right? So right now, this memo, as you read it under the benching part, is in violation of the IT serve case that just came down that they are having a new memo for, right? So that's why in our briefing process, we um, we like to uh, to cite cases and, and help understand how to do that. Um, that's why briefs are important. That's why we brief. A lot, of, a lot of lawyers will just write a table of contents and let the documents speak for themselves. That means they're leaving it to immigration to interpret what these things are saying. That's not good lawyering. Good lawyering is saying, here's what this document means. Good lawyering is saying, you should look at what's in your documents, right? We're not just going to put it in there and hope these guys do it because these guys are looking for the string to undo the sweater, right? Okay. All right, next one. Limiting time periods. May an officer limit the validity period of an, a an approved H-1B application? USCIS may issue approvals for H-1B petitions, this is their answer, with validity periods shorter than the time period requested by the H-1B petitioner. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, the, however, the decision must be accompanied by a brief explanation, brief explanation, as to why the validity period has been limited. This includes, but is not limited to, instances in which the certified LCA has a validity period shorter than duration that's specified on the H-1B. Okay, so if the L L LCA is shorter, all right, I'll buy that. But let's look at what the court actually said. IT serve case also invalidated CIS practice of granting visas for less than three years, which represents a change after decades of past practice on which U.S. employees have come to rely and which presumably remains the practice for employers in other industries. And therefore, we, we not legitimate denials, uh, that's bad. therefore, were not legitimate denials and were arbitrary and capricious and violations of the APA. The court hammered them on the short denials, and what did they just say? We can do it. We can do it if we give a brief explanation. That is horrible advice that USCIS policy has given the USCIS adjudicators. They just said, violate this case law. So that means don't just rely on the memo. Rely on the case law in your briefing of these cases. All right. So, uh, okay, so that's the, that's the memo, right? Um, that's what the ban, that's what the memo says that came out June 22nd. All right. So what's still after issue? What's still at issue after um, the memo um, for the filing of H-1Bs in 2020? Okay. Well, specialty occupation. They touch around it, but they don't address it. Right. 
Um, and, and that's weird because there's a lot of cases that came out and they really could have. But the reason that they didn't is that they don't want to. Specialty occupation is going to be the battleground. It's going to be the battleground of these H-1Bs in the 2020 season, okay? Or 2021 fiscal year, whatever you want to call it. All right, so what that means is be ready for H-1B uh, RFEs on that. If you think you do not need an immigration attorney um, to file an H-1B and you can just stick it in like you did prior to 2016 because of the settlement, uh, I think you're going to be in for a, a, a rough surprise. Okay, so especially occupation. Um, sort of hidden in the, uh, in the other categories, but um, it must be under the OOH. We talked about that. Must not be vague um, and look for denials, right? Okay, so how to win it. So there are two things under the OOH. One is what they do. Um, so look at the tasks and the duties. And the other is how do you become one? That's the tab under the OOH. And how do you become one is where the language is that says, um, do you, is, is this, does this job require a degree? And what they, what they, where these battlegrounds will be fought on is going to be in the language of the OOH, how to become one. Okay. Telling you right now, that's where the H1B is going to be battled or one of the areas, the biggest area. Okay. So that's how you win. So here's the case law behind it. Okay. This is really critical stuff and there's a lot of it. So this goes, the, the first case law that came out that, that I really loved on this, that hammered it was called Next Generation Technology versus Johnson. That came out in 2017. Okay. And this is where uh, USCIS had been interpreting the OOH language um, and denying cases. All right. So, and the court said in 2017, and this is a, a Southern district of New York or a big battleground, uh, area for litigation um, for federal courts. Even affording appropriate deference to the government's interpretation of the statutory and regulatory requirements, this court is at a loss to see a rational connection between the evidence indicating that most computer programmers have a bachelor's degree and USCIS's determination that computer programmers are not normally required to have a bachelor's degree, right? So while general degrees are not permissible for a specialty occupation, federal cases have provided clarification of USCIS's recent decisions to deny cases by interpreting the regulations in opposition of its text structure and history. Okay, so right, right in John in, in Next Gen, um, they said that there was no rational um, uh, no rational connection where USCIS was taking the word you know the most needed to say that um, it's not normal to have it. Right? I mean, they just using the word most has been a big thing that they've been really weird about. So that was back in 2017, okay? But so a lot of them have come down in 2020. Okay, so in two separate cases, um, on March 31st, 2020, the same judge, Judge Rudolph Contreras of the U.S. District Court in D.C., issued two decisions on H-1B adjudications for computer systems analysts, all right? One was called TaylorMade Software versus Cuccinelli. Cuccinelli's who replaced Cisna, okay, as the head of DHS. The second was called InfoLabs versus USCIS, all right? So in, the, in, in these cases, the agency determined that the Department of Labor's authoritative source on information about occupations, the Occupational Outlook Handbook, we just talked about, stated most, quotes, United States workers doing this job have a degree in the specialty occupation, which is computer science, and that it was typical, also in quotes, for United States workers to have that degree when working in the field. Notwithstanding uh, the DOL's position in the OOH, the agency, being USCIS or Homeland Security, found it was not normal for United States workers doing the job to have a degree in the specific specialty. Judge Contreras found the reasoning to be arbitrary and capricious, right? So again, it said most and said typical, and they said that wasn't normal, right? All right, so that, those cases come back and say, look, if it says most, that's okay, that's a requirement. All right, so um, there was another District of Columbia D.C. court case that came out uh, on March 6th. Um, and that was called 3Q Digital versus Nielsen. The United, the United States District Court um, entered an order invalidating uh, the defendants, which was um, uh, Nielsen was, uh, I guess, the, uh, the, the secretary at that point, um, the, uh, the USCIS. Practice of avoiding expert opinions and employer evidence regarding a position and degree requirement. Um, oh, I'm sorry, that's a different one. Bar, that's bar, bar chart versus assistance. So, so in, in the DC one, um, they invalidated, uh, their position on the degree requirement again. And then in bar chart that that's where, um, USCIS just ignored an expert opinion and ignored a subsequent employer evidence. It just like, it didn't even incur. Right. Uh, and then there was a really interesting case called inspection expert corp versus Cuccinelli. All right. 
And that was um, in North Carolina, district court in North Carolina, uh, federal district court. Um, and, and so USCIS in, attempted to interpret normally to mean more than 70%. 70% of those working on QA, it's quality assistance uh, or assurance, engineers have at least a bachelor's degree, according to the ONET statistics. It's insufficient to the extent USC construed normally to provide something more uh, than most or 70%. It said that they erred when they do that. So what they did in the IXC case, inspection expert, ISC, um, is uh, instead of looking at the ordinary meaning of the term um, normally, um, they uh, they defined... Um, uh, what do I say there? So, so they went. They went to the court. Went and looked at the Oxford University Press, defining normal or usual conditions and usual way, and identifying as synonyms, usually, ordinarily, commonly, common, commonly, ordinary, in general, mostly, most of the time, more often than not, and regularly. Right. So they use that and said, look, that's what that's what most means. Any of those words, right? So um, it's it, it, it's not seventy percent. It's 51%, all right? So it's a 51% rule is what it came down at. So then they came and there's a couple of things uh, that I'll follow out and I'll move on, okay? So basically the specialty occupation in the, in the requirement of the university degree, this is contained in case law. This is why you need to brief, right? And you want to show them, here's our job. Here's the cases that say it's okay to have that. What that does is effectively answers an RFE before one's answered and really makes it hard to deny your case, okay? So that's what we'll do. All right, so what's left after specialty occupation? Level one wages. Okay, so level one wages are as follows. So the Department of Labor issues wages, right? That's what a preliminary uh, wage is. Um, uh, the, not preliminary wage, um, the uh, prevailing wage, I'm sorry. The prevailing wage is sort of like a minimum wage and it's, it's data collected by the Department of Labor for the county and state where the job's going to be, okay? And up until the recent administration, the current administration, you just had to be over the prevailing wage. There was no discussion of the levels. So what came out um, a couple of years ago, um, really it came out in a memo the day before the visas were all due. Um, they said um, they were going to look at this, right? At the, the prevailing wages um, in level one. And so they started denying a lot of these ones, right? So that's not gone, right? And we think that the wages of employees is going to be a battleground because there's so many unemployed Americans, right? So the, the argument that people that are against H-1Bs and against merit-based immigration are that, are these people going to be paid less than Americans, right? So even though there's a prevailing wage, they're going to use level one as a thing to do, right? Now, you can still get level ones approved, right? So we can go into that. So there's a way, it's just that you have to understand um, what level one means, right? So um, basically, level one is an entry-level position under a memo by the Department of Labor. So we often will go into that, that memo and show them what it is. We also make the argument that another, you, uh, another uh, federal officer has already determined that they met the prevailing wage, and that's why they certified um, the prevailing wage uh, request, and they certified the LCA, right? Not the prevailing wage request. They certified the LCA. All right, because that's put in there. So um, for level one, the experience requirement is zero. Uh, the educational requirement is a minimum requirement, a bachelor's degree or higher, and the special skills are zero. Okay, so where does it come in to be a problem, right, if, if you have that? Well, in your job description, if that entry-level per person um, is overseeing anybody else, right, it's not entry-level, right? So there's, uh, you know, level three is going to be in a senior or a managerial level of whatever position is. So if you're trying to bring in a managerial level person, you put them at level one, that's a killer, right? So you want to want to make that either a level three or a level four. Uh, so that's that's really where it's going to be. So you got to look at the chart. There's a chart that's, uh, that's on there. And in that chart, um, it's, uh, um, it's called the Employment and Training Administration Prevailing Wage Determination Policy Guidelines Revised November 2019, and it's on page 14 and 16 of that. And it's that chart where you can kind of see whether they're a level one, two, three, and four looking at a series of things. And that's what that's what DOL uses when they certify an LCA. So understanding how that chart works is really important. 
And then you look at that um, and, and you plug that in and, and that can help you win the level one. All right, but beware, because in the ban, before the ban, we, we talked to a lot of lobbyists and, and other people discussing it. One of the things they didn't put in the ban, but they wanted to, was to allow level one, but only allow it for a couple of years. So beware of the requirements coming down uh, that they've asked DOL and Homeland Security to put together, they being the White House, um, on what happens. You might see an increase of level one. You might see lower visas for level one. But be wary of denials for level ones in jobs that are more sophisticated than an entry-level position. And so what we do is we make sure that if we have a level one employee, that they are under the supervision of a superior officer. So you really have to have the supervision. It has to be in the employment letter, and it has to be in the way that the company deals with that person. And it's a little tricky if your company is supervising somebody that's a location someplace else and the supervisor's not there. So how do you prove that up? Through communication and, and other things, right? So devil's in the details there, folks. So look at that. Okay, so uh, we're moving on. So the, uh, you know... This is dealing with the cases, uh, the settlement, and the memo, or a few of the series of things that have impacted the H-1B visa, and we may be carving this uh, video up. So um, we're going to continue on. Um, if you're watching an abbreviated visa, you might go to the Online Visas YouTube channel and look at the other ones. Okay, so we're going to move on. So the next one is the impact of COVID-19 pandemic on the filing of H-1B visas. All right, so there's a couple of things, uh, delays and extensions, change of status filings. So USCIS has some COVID-19 sites um, and they say things like Homeland Security recognizes there's an immigration-related challenges as a direct result of the coronavirus pandemic and they're uh, continuing to analyze things. Um, they know you must depart, you know, when your uh, your visa expires. But again, we talked about it. What if what if uh, you got furloughed or what if you're terminated and, th and those sort of things? Um, you're going to have 60 days now uh, under a under a rule that came out in the last three days of the Obama administration, 60 days to, to file for another case. Um, you might be able to be laid off or furloughed for a little bit and go back to your company. A lot of this, we don't really know how this is going to go until you try it. Um, and uh, so <laughs> if you were furloughed because of COVID-19, make sure that there's a letter from your employer that says the furlough or the temporary uh suspension, or even a reduction in, in salary was because of COVID-19. And then they will, it'll be a special circumstance that you can uh, put in with your case when you go for the next thing. So the question is, if somebody is fired um, and they are being rehired by the same company, do they need to file a new H-1B with that company? Well, it's, it's unknown. They may attempt to say, I was just put down there. They may cite that, that case we talked about. Uh, or I'm sorry, that statute we talked about that people don't have to work all the time that was in the IT Serve Alliance case, cite it from there to say that we were out of work for a little bit, but now we're back and we're out of work because of COVID-19, look at this letter and say, we're good, right? Or file a new case if you feel that you need to be safe about that um, and, and go forward like that. Um, and, and, there, and, and if you file that new case within the 60 days, then they're not out of status. They don't need to leave out of the country and they, they can come back in. So that might be the best practice. It costs a little bit more money, filing fees and stuff like that. But that's something you can do. So, you know, uh, applying for an extension, filing in a timely manner, flexibility for late applications are all things that come under the special situations. And the special situations can include COVID-19. And uh, it's it, but they're going to require you to, to play it. And it also brings in the issue of public charge. And public charge is also one of those things that's happened since the last time we filed H-1Bs a year ago. Um, and they're in the new I-129 is a public charge section, whether you've ever received state or federal aid. And if you have, you can be denied a visa, right? So uh, there is a receiving unemployment because of COVID-19 is now a possibility, okay? And in that public charge issues of receiving unemployment by USCIS, they have a for example, if an alien, foreign national, hate the word alien, is prevented from working or attending school um, and must rely on public benefits for the duration of the COVID-19 outbreak and recovery phase, the alien can provide an explanation and relevant supporting documentation. To the extent relevant and credible, USCIS will take such evidence into consideration in the totality of the alien circumstances. Okay, they're not saying that for sure you can do this, but um, we are, we'll take it into consideration on a, on a, on a case by case basis. So be careful. You don't have to do it. Maybe you don't do it, but look, if you lost your job, that's what it's for. Um, another thing that you can do for sure is receive the stimulus check. The stimulus check is looked as a benefit and it's not a public charge thing. Okay. So, um, we've come to the end of our, 
almost hour-long uh, uh, video. Um, I'm John Veely. I'm the CEO of Online Visas. Please go to our YouTube channel and like and share and subscribe. Uh, leave comments. Go to onlinevisas.com and, um, and uh, ask for a strategy session with us. Glad to talk to you about your situation. Um, we are about to... Um, uh, Online Visas has developed an AI-aided um, visa-building cloud-based platform uh, with these types of arguments that we have that, that help us build them faster and better. Um, if you're interested in something like that, uh, you know, uh, we're glad to, glad to talk to you about it and, and go forward with that. We can really help you there. So um, I'm John Veely, CEO of Online Visas, and we're delivering uh, dreams one visa at a time. Take care.